This is Lifetime Sentence, the podcast where we watch bad Lifetime original movies and compare them to the truly heinous stories that inspired them. Because sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. Hey, can I tell you something ridiculous? Please. I got accepted to my doctoral program I applied for. Well, A, that's not ridiculous because I knew you would. And B, congratulations. I'm so proud of you. I'm a fucking idiot for doing this, but I'm going to do it. We're going to do it together because you have to listen to me complain for three years now. Yay. <laughs> when we graduate, I'll fly you out. And I won't out. even have a doctorate to show for it. <laughs> do you like how I said when we graduate, I'll fly like... you out to my graduation? <laughs> Okay, well, can I get, like, an honorary one from the school for putting up with your nonsense? I'm going to recommend it, in fact. Thank you. When they call me, because, so I didn't even walk the stage when I got my master's. I, in fact, was playing a concert that day, so I went and played a performance instead because it made money. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, for sure, will walk the stage when I get this doctorate, and I'll stop when they say my name, and I'll make a speech, even though there's clearly no time for speeches. And I'll be like, none of this would have been possible without the one woman in my life, Aaron, who had my back. <laughs> <laughs> and then Sarah will murder me in the audience, and then you can do a whole show about my murder. God, man, this is an exciting graduation already. Let's just fast forward to two years from now. <laughs> not, not that I want you to die, but man, I haven't had that much drama in my life since the last time I got in a Facebook argument four hours ago. It's going to be lit. I got in a Facebook argument yesterday. Look at you. No, and I never get into Facebook arguments. You don't. Make it like, up. you really don't. I really don't. Yeah, so, yeah, there was a whole thing about this girl that was on The Bachelor using the N-word in a post, and she didn't apologize for it and then people were like oh but it wasn't a song so she can do that and i was like oh fuck no she can't and so yeah that's that is literally the same line of logic as like i didn't say the r no you still can't sorry Hmm. yeah you can't say it it's just a word that you don't say and it's not you know my argument was it's not that hard for people that know not to you know that just don't say the word to not say it. It's people that use it on the down low or allow other people in their life to use it without saying anything that have trouble not saying it. Right. Sorry, not sorry. God. I, I don't, don't even... you be a racist asshole. The end. Um, the title of our next album featuring other tracks like don't dick around with kissy Chrissy Teigen because I got real pissed on yes. Chrissy Teigen's behalf this week. Yes. Well, but plus people were like sticking up for her. Like she's from Alabama. She doesn't know. And I was like, no, that excuse is canceled. My family's from Alabama and I promise you they fucking know better. Alabama knows, I think probably better than anybody or they should like, what? Yeah, and the, it's the not like they said is, Florida, like Florida or Wisconsin. We could look past. I mean, we wouldn't forget. But well, the thing is, like, even if I can tell my father if he uses that word, our conversation is immediately over. No questions asked. I will walk away. Then anybody can. Right. It's very simple. You just don't stand for it in your life. The end. Thank you for coming to my TED talk, man. <laughs> You know what? I think you and I need to abandon our jobs and become life coaches because we've got this thing down. 
Now, this is a do as I say, not as I do approach to life. Yeah. But. I'm fully ready to abandon my job. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I like that we both want the best for each other, which means we just are like kindly helping each other find new jobs. (laughs) Yep. But I think this life coach thing could take off. We can travel. We can do TED Talks. They can hire us to talk at middle schools about, I don't know, virginity and drugs. I'm not talking about virginity. Fuck that. Virginity is a construct. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We just have to tell them we're talking about virginity and drugs. We don't have to say what we're talking about. If it grows in the ground, it's okay. And virginity is a construct. Thank you, school. <laughs> Listen, I told you about the uh, virginity speech I went to where they said you just rewrap your virginity and give it again. And all I can picture is the matryoshka dolls of virginity. Just it keeps getting smaller and smaller all wrapped up. I was taught that once I give away my virginity that I am worthless as a woman. <laughs> Yeah, I just kind of turned out to be true, but I think more because I internalized it and I made it that way myself and not because it's true. Right. As I say, no, it's not true. Thank you. And I cannot actually apologize for all Christian white men, but on behalf of them, I'd like to apologize. It can't undo anything, but there are there are five of us who are trying to fix it thank you to all five of you (laughs) we've made a council we have nicknames now oh my god i just can't okay want to talk about a real fucking loser scam artist yeah speaking of loser scam artists this is lifetime sentence and i'm paul and i'm aaron and i'm not a scam artist at all i don't know what you're talking about Yes. I come from one of the best, but I turned out to be on the good side, much to her chagrin, I'm sure. Well, underneath all of this, what you don't know is I'm actually Chris Hemsworth, so I've been scamming you for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. This week I watched Who is Clark Rockefeller? And spoiler alert. Nobody. Nobody. (laughs) Nobody. What if that was the full movie? Like, it just shows the opening credits. It says, who is Clark Rockefeller? And then the screen goes black and just, like, final credits pop up that says nobody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's like that. um, There's a book that came out a while ago called um, People We Hate at the Wedding. And so one of the reviewers was like, no, it doesn't just say everyone. Um, it stars Eric McCormack, who plays Clark Rockefeller and all of his identities. Um, you know him from Will and Grace. Mm-hmm. Um, he is Will. He is hot. Uh, yes, he is. And apparently uh, takes up the same shelf in my brain as Rob Lowe. Like, I guess they, they, they resemble each other enough. But, like, I think of Rob Lowe in this role, even though I know it's not him. It's like um, Dermot Mulroney and Dylan McDermott. Dylan McDermott, and so the deck, the Hallmark guys, just call them Dermot McDillett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and that's how they are. Like these two just meld into one person in the movies. Yeah. He is also from Traveler's Perception, Dead Like Me. And he's also in another Lifetime movie based on a true story called The Romeo Killer. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it stars Sherry Stringfield as Sandra Boss. That's will know not her a person as... I've ever heard of. Yeah, you know her. Okay. Did you watch ER? Like six episodes max. She was like the head nurse lady or like front desk lady in ER. Okay. The blonde one with the short hair. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, she was also in The Stepfather, 54, and Guiding Light. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And we open with a with Sandy doing multiple takes of the phrase, although things have changed, you will always be Ray's father. She keeps getting cut by who I thought at the time were producers, but will actually turn out to be FBI agents who I guess produce on the side (laughs) (laughs) who say she needs to have more emotion. And then we cut to a door with one of those obnoxious lion door knockers. Yes. Just to prove how ostentatious and rich you are. Mm-hmm. A song plays in the background. Money makes the world go round. Does it sound like a real song, or is this clearly Lifetime spent their budget oh, on getting Eric McCormack? Not a real song. Gotcha. Yeah. It's not a real song. Yeah, this was a real. We got Eric McCormack. We got Sherry Stringfield. We don't have any more budget, <laughs> except for ridiculous clothes. Um, the set is just like a telenovela set. When they slam the door, the whole thing shakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so Clark Rockefeller comes out the door. He's wearing a blazer with like an emblem on it. Like he's at prep school and not like a grown ass man. Yes. <laughs> um, and then he puts on his glasses and he looks like a whole snack for real. Um, no he doubt. stops. He stops to pet the neighbor's dog. The neighbor is dressed in a Chanel suit and is carrying a Chanel bag, like quilted bag, which I don't think is actually Chanel. I think I'm sure it's knockoffs for the costume department, but still. Right. Um, elsewhere, a little girl and her mom and um, Sandy get out of a town car and head into the plaza, which is definitely not the plaza. <laughs> Upstairs, the little girl runs around while, while mom makes business calls. Before bed, the girl talks about all the things she and her daddy are going to do the next day and how she'll just never get to go to sleep. Mom tucks her in and watches her sleep. It's very cute. Oh. The next morning, Mr. Rockefeller gets into his car with his chauffeur and they chat about their kids. And then they talk about the pickup that afternoon. Clark tells his chauffeur about this nutty, nosy family member of his. It's going to crash his lunch with the senator, who I assume is the senator from the office. That's exactly what I was about to say. (laughs) (laughs) And who may even try to get in the car with them when they leave. The chauffeur assures him that it will be no problem and nobody is getting in his car without his permission. Um, Clark offers the chauffeur a $2,000 tip in exchange for his help with this family member. Um, 
The little girl is getting ready while Mr. Rockefeller goes into some kind of office brownstone and acts like a douchebag um, about paintings. Good, good. Yeah, it was really dumb. <laughs> so at the hotel, Mr. Bernard comes to pick up Snooks, who's their daughter, and take her to see Clark. They go to the brownstone where Snooks and Clark Oh, and then Snooks and Clark go to the the club and have lunch while Mr. Bernard calls to update mom and the other people at the club eavesdrop. I like that he's Mr. Bernard because Andy Bernard from The Office, like it really is coming full circle. Mm. Now I'm choosing to believe that Andy Bernard is the social worker and they are going to meet the senator. You know, Andy Bernard would probably be a good social worker. Yeah. He cares a lot about people. <laughs> Um, at lunch, they discuss the periodic table, which is typical fodder for a young child. Um, well, yeah, I mean, haven't you ever sat down with your dad and you're just like, is it germanium or geranium? No. Just me? Okay, great. Thanks. Snooks says she wishes they could all be together in a family again. And Clark says, maybe if they keep wishing and hoping it will come true. They leave and go to the park while Mr. Bernard walks behind them at a suitable social distance. So he was social distancing before it was cool. (laughs) Typical Andy Bernard hipster fashion. Yeah. Clark's car pulls up across the street. So Clark puts snooks on his shoulders and gallops across the street he tells mr bernard hey i used to live right there number 105 and when mr bernard turns around clark pushes him down scoops snooks up gets in and locks the door that's only one step better than hey look a distraction (laughs) yeah (laughs) um the car takes off and mr bernard bless his heart like actually hangs on for a while before the car speeds off without him. I'm impressed. The man is like hanging on to a moving vehicle. Like that's crazy. <laughs> um, then he gets thrown off and almost hit by a cab. So Mr. Bernard's not having a good day. <clears throat> um, but he is not at all rattled by the fact that he almost got run over. He gets up and he's like, there's been a kidnapping and calls 911. <laughs> I would have really loved it if he'd gotten up and looked embarrassed like like oh god somebody caught him doing something embarrassing dan cook (laughs) dan cook does a whole sketch about somebody who got hit by a car and he stood up and looked embarrassed like he had been in imposition and that's now just how i expect everyone to respond to everything that is terrifying um so mom shows up uh, sandy shows up where a couple policemen are talking to Mr. Bernard, who, like, goes up to the mom and profusely apologizes to her for almost getting hit by a car and having her daughter kidnapped. Okay, but for real, if you told me this was a storyline with Andy Bernard, I still would believe it. I would, too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the policemen start asking her questions about... 
you know, dumb stuff. And she's like, I literally do not care what you're talking about right now. What are we going to do about this? And then she goes and p- picks up Snook's bear that ha- that was on the side of the road because she dropped it. Aww. Meanwhile, Clark's, Clark and Snook's are stuck in a major gridlock, which is the problem with kidnapping someone in the middle of Manhattan. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. So they get out and walk. Um, the police are still asking Sandy questions until she starts yelling. Um, she's like, you don't understand. Like, he's not going to hurt her. He would never hurt anyone. He's going to disappear. Um, Clark and Snooks make it across town and meet their friend Kelly, Katie. Sorry, their friend Katie. She drives them to the train station and she asks Clark if she can make a pit stop because she has to pee. How dare she? He yells at her. And tells her that she can't stop. And then her phone rings and he's like, you can't answer the phone either with Snooks in the car. Right. That's a rule. Didn't you know? Hmm. Um, they take Sandy to meet with the FBI. Um, the agent tells her to start from the beginning. So she does. Um, we flash back to 15 years ago when her sister introduced her to Clark. They're at a masquerade ball where people are just acting entirely too douchey, so you know they don't actually have any money. Yes. Um, this would have been, oh, I said, this would have been my, her first red flag because old money is quietly ostentatious, not overtly douchey uh-huh. about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you walked um, into Nouveau Riche, girl. Yeah. Big time. Clark has an old-timey pipe that he's not smoking out of, even though he's wearing a smoking jacket. He insists on calling Sandy Sandra because he despises nicknames. God, that's... It's that level of petty that Laura Dern achieved in Big Little Lies. Madeline. Mm -hmm. He gives her the rundown on his supposed bloodline. Is that how you introduce yourself to people? You just give your pedigree? No, but I know people who do. Like, it's a thing. Yeah, no, fuck that. Mm-hmm. Um, he um, asks about her. He's like, oh, tell me about you. And then he launches into a story about he works, how he works on developing African economies. Okay. He's like, tell me about you. What I do is I do that. <laughs> yes. Um, then he takes her to his room and shows her all of his expensive art and touches her arm inappropriately. But they don't do the part where he mispronounces Pollock. Like, that's a big thing in the actual story. Right. Where he says, oh, it's a Pollock. Yeah. Instead of a Pollock. Um, and I'm bitter about it. But he does say the line about... Oh, that little museum on West 53rd that Aunt Lizzie started keeps trying to get me to donate this art. Uh-huh. And Sandy's like, uh, the Museum of Modern Art. So I will say that that all is historically and factually factually accurate. The art stuff is the stuff that I cut out so I could fit this story into mm-hmm. an hour and a half long podcast and not the six hours it deserves. Yeah. Well, and just, again, like, if he was really old money, he would have been like, oh, yeah, Momo wants these, but I'm not giving them up, you know? Right. 
It'd be nope. much more blasé. Yeah. I just can't with this guy. He's a fucking idiot. Um, he goes to kiss her, and then there's this thing where they're speaking Klingon to each other. Okay. And then they kiss, which, thank God, because I was getting really bored. I was about to turn it off. I was like, I have no interest in Klingon. Thank you. Um, it's not your favorite language? Sandy gets a, no. Sandy gets a summer job in the city, so they start dating, naturally. Clark wears this ridiculous, huge walkie-talkie on his belt and says it's for family security. And I'm like, dude, that's a walkie-talkie. It's for seven-year-olds to communicate down the block. (laughs) Some poor little kid is like, are you there? Infinitely rich. Over. Infinitely rich. Is that you? (laughs) Sandy wakes up one morning to him playing. Oh, my God. And I didn't write down the name of it. Okay, it's from the Aborigines. A didgeridoo? Uh, yes. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, he's playing that, like, at the end of the bed in the morning, and I'm like, I would have What an unsettling him. noise to wake up to. <laughs> um, and then he starts telling her the story of visiting Australia with his cousin, you know, the one killed by the New Guinea tribesmen. Um, which I was like, dude, slow your roll. You're trying way too hard. He's got names written all the way up his arm. He has to peel back his sleeve to his armpit. Um, and then there's... scary. <laughs> um, they douche together about doing the Times crossword, which, ugh, fuck off. I can't stand people that talk about that shit. Um... Then Clark gets vulnerable and tells her he doesn't want her to leave at the end of the summer and tells a sad, sad, fake story about his parents dying while he was at Yale. Um, They both drop the L-bomb and he cries over how she's going to help him be the man he wants to be. I must be swift as a coursing river. Back in the present, Clark and Snooks are sneaking through Grand Central Station, like you do. <laughs> and what I was waiting for was like the bat, like the voiceover from um, Kristen Bell, like <laughs> oh, yes, Siders, Gossip Girl here. <laughs> Have we you started, seen? We, I someone think spotted Clark Rockefeller. <laughs> I think it's on Jimmy Kimmel. Um, she read a whole bunch of celebrity tweets in her Gossip Girl voice, and it's the best thing I've ever seen. I will have to look that up. That sounds hilarious. Um, FBI guy is trying to track Clark down like on the databases, but surprise, he's not real. Unfortunately, none of his bosses believe him, so he has to keep looking. <laughs> How does... Like, how does somebody believe that a human being like that exists in real time? Like, he was so over the top. Like, so far, you've not told me an exaggeration of him. No. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing about this guy. Like, Lifetime didn't have to exaggerate anything because this is how he was, for real. Um, Meredith Vieira talks about the kidnapping on TV. Um, Clark and Snook's are in Baltimore and Clark has given Snooks a quarantine haircut and dressed her like a boy. Oh, good. Bangs that are uneven. 
bowl cut, straight yeah. bowl cut. Yes. Um, I sent a text to my um, girl who does my hair today that if her salon doesn't open up soon, I'm going to look like this. And it was sad Brittany with all her hair gone. <laughs> and she was like, I'll make a house call if I have to. Nobody deserves that. <laughs> Um, the FBI watched the Meredith Vieira interview with like great interest. And I'm like, you guys, you're supposed to know more than Meredith Vieira knows. <laughs> They're writing down. They're like, oh, there was a kid involved. Shit. I had no idea. They, she said Snooks. I thought that was like a family dog. <laughs> um, then they interview Sandy asking her about Clark's social security number, driver's license, marriage license, anything that proves that he is who he says he is. She, of course, does not have any of this because Clark is a big old fat liar and told her he takes care of everything, even though he doesn't. And no, this doesn't bring up issues for me. I always talk this loud. <laughs> sure, Jan. Oof. This was like very. It reminds it, the way that they're like staring at her remind people of like when I tell people things about my life they just look at me like i'm insane uh-huh i can understand that and i'm like i understand that this sounds crazy but at the time it made sense as someone who knows most of your story i can understand why that people would look at you like that and that none of it is made up no um so they ask her to make a video appeal to clark to bring snooks back Sandy yells about it, but of course they don't have anything else to go on. So she kind of has to, um, Sandy's dad comes and they interview him. We see Clark meet the dad and just knock it straight out of the park. I mean, he really does on their way back to wherever they're going. The dad tells, um, Sandy to watch out for people's character. And he's like, I don't mean Clark. I just mean that like, Sometimes people that are really, really rich like that, they don't play by the rules. And um, Sandy, of course, is like all moon, moon eyed and love struck. And she's like, but he's the one and he's different than other gross rich people. He's a nice rich, pe rich person. <laughs> yeah, no. And we cut to the wedding and this I could not make up if I fucking tried. Nobody could. Clark is riding a Segway in a tuxedo while his dog runs beside him on a leash wearing a doggy suit. Um, rich people are the worst. And fake <laughs> rich people are even worse than that. Clark chastises the caterers for having green food. And this is the second time he's brought up the color green. So he has some kind of weird thing. I don't know what it is. Um, uh, nobody stands for Sandy as she walks down the aisle, which rude. <laughs> well, <laughs> what yeah, the hell? I mean, Clark already made the big entrance. What's a white dress going to do after that? And also half the church is empty because... Quote, none, oh, none of the Rockefellers came because, quote, Clark didn't want them to steal Sandy's thunder. So thoughtful. Lies. It's lies. It's all lies. 
Um, they dance in slow-mo at the reception, and then we cut immediately back to Sandy making the video again. While she's making the video, one of the FBI guys comes back with a match on some fingerprints they were able to get from his neighbor. And hold on to your tits, because you won't believe this. I will. I know the story. He's not a Rockefeller. No. But he said his Aunt Lizzie. It turns out lots of people have the Google machine. (laughs) Sandy asks if they know who he is and kind of lets it slip that she knew he wasn't a Rockefeller already. Um... They ask her about it, and she says that she hired a detective during the divorce proceedings to look into his finances. But she didn't out him at the time because they didn't. she didn't want to tell her daughter that her father was a stranger. And also to protect her career because she was like a high-powered um, business consultant. And if it came out, she says, if it comes out that I married someone that I have no idea who he is, who's going to trust me with their, you know, millions right. of dollars? Um, this is why she won custody, though, because Clark couldn't prove that he was a real person. And then they just had the record sealed so nobody would find out. Um, this time, Matt Lauer discusses the kidnapping, um, and some guy in a place sees it and recognizes Clark. And we cut to the past, a long, blonde-haired Clark with a German accent arriving on a doorstep claiming to be from an exchange program. Yes. He starts teaching himself with Gil- English with Gilligan's Island. He goes to clubs and hits on girls claiming that his father owns Mercedes Benz. Um, the guy watching the news comes out of his flashback and is like, I recognize that asshole. So he calls the cops. <clears throat> Back in the past, Oh, no, in the present, Clark, who is now going by Chip, buys a house, but can't stop making up ridiculous stories about how well-connected he is. Sandy is still being questioned, and she starts talking about the red flags she saw but didn't see. Right. Like how his money was always tied up, etc. Um, we go back in time to when they were married, and she's mad because Clark bounced a $2,000 check to the wine store. I have several questions. Mm-hmm. Chief of which, do you think that was one bottle of wine because they're rich people or several bottles of Boone's Farm or something just slightly higher priced? I think it was several bottles of very expensive wine because it was $2,000. So they got like three bottles of wine I would never drink instead of just a, you know, a basket full of yellowtail for $2,000. Mm-hmm. Well, if you think about, so like Dom is like 150 200 bucks. Right. So that's like five bottles. That's like 10 bottles of Dom. Yeah, I would still go with the um, 38 bottles of Andre. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> It'd be way more than 38, too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so she's mad at Clark, and this bitch Clark has the audacity to tell her that he doesn't need to stop spending money. She just needs to ask for a raise. Uh-uh. <laughs> oh, no. Um, 
she's like, why don't, like, maybe you get a job? So he, this makes him angry and he gaslights the fuck out of her about it. He calls her touchingly middle class. And no. so she used to want to change the world and now she just wants to pay the wine bill. What the fuck? The FBI did a quick Google search of Clark's real name, which they've now figured out is Christian Gerhardt's writer, and find an old episode of Unsolved Mysteries in which he was going by the name Christopher Chichester and is wanted for questioning in a double homicide. And can I just say, if FBI work is just Googling... And watching old episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. When can I start work? Because I'm so good at that. Right? So good. Call me. Um, Years of academy training right here. <laughs> um, they break the news to Sandy, who's like, sorry, what now? What? Murder? What? Um... Clark and Snooks, who is now, or is still dressed like a boy, is getting on a boat that he's bought, a catamaran. And how do these people with no money manage to buy things like houses and boats with no problem? And whenever I start looking to buy a house, I can hear the bank laughing at me through Zillow. Right? Side note, I got a meme today that I meant to send y'all and I don't think I did but feels like it's appropriate for this situation. Um, let's see. The United States is $22 trillion in debt and they have the audacity to give me a credit score. Worry about yourself first, baby girl. No shit. <laughs> I just want to know how a guy with no ID, no money, no hist like no credit history can just buy a house and a boat. Well, yeah, that's when you lift up the other sleeve, the one you haven't read on yet. And you're like, but my uncle George died Bleh, money. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah. The FBI briefs an entire squad of police who are going to be out looking for Clark. I'll keep this rundown light because this is what you do so well. Um... When Clark was Christian, we see him fight with the family he's living with, dye his hair, and go to the University of Wisconsin, where he marries a girl just for a green card. Then he gets hired at an office and immediately becomes the office creep before being fired for using the son of Sam's social security number. I know! What a, like, and he just, like, took a guess at numbers, like... Then he gets a job at the Pentagon. I, just, I need you to be shocked with me. I know you're not, but I just can't. Look, like, you know, I, I'm not saying Pentagon that you did a bad job here, but I'm pretty sure your job is literally to know who people are. Right. You're listening right now through our computers. Then he becomes a surgeon. Yeah, you could at this point, you could be like, and then he was the second man on the moon. And I'd be like, checks out. Okay, he becomes a surgeon. And I need you to remind me to never, ever go to the hospital ever again. Um, I will make sure that Sarah picks your doctors for the rest of forever. 
Thank you. You're welcome. Um, then he becomes Christopher Chichester and fancies himself a baron. You know, the British royal family. Um, he gets his own talk show for reasons. Um, then he almost gets elected to city council. Before you go off on like talk show, it was a public access show. It was Parks and Rec. It was the woman who's always trying to bust Leslie Nope. It's not like a legitimate thing. (laughs) Um, he's, and I wrote, where are the fact checkers? I'm so confused. Um, he's living in a guest house with a couple, and then one day, the couple just disappears. Um, Clark tells the neighbors that they got a job with the CIA. It's top secret. Shh. Don't tell anyone. Um, by the time they're reported missing, Clark is long gone. Sandy yells about how stupid she is and how it never occurred to her that she could be being scammed by her own husband. She says when she found out he was a fraud, she hated him, but she never considered the fact that he could be a murderer. Um, Back in the present, Clark. I think that's something that people should start writing in their, like, prenup or, like, when they're going through counseling, if you're a person who goes through premarital counseling, just, like, broach the question of, did you kill anybody? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, like in the present, Clark's going through a suitcase of cash and coins, like you do, you know. Um, they asked Sandy if Clark was ever violent, and we see him throw, like, an absolute hissy fit at a party because someone took his picture. Um, at this party, Clark mercifully name drops himself, mercilessly name drops himself, and makes jokes about Oyster's Rockefeller... No. Red flag number nine million that this dude is not rich. <laughs> he and Sandy get into a fight about name dropping, lying, etc., and she leaves him. But then he shows up on her doorstep in Boston and they try to make up. He brings her his family heirloom necklace that's probably super fake. Um, she says no at first, but then they have wine and sex, which, you know. Makes you wear family family heirloom necklace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she starts commuting to the family estate in New Hampshire on the weekends. The one weekend, then one weekend she tells him she's pregnant. She has the baby and now she's the one going to work and Clark stays home with Snooks. He also bounces checks for $110,000 buying things like towns with historical monuments in them. I'm sorry. When you said towns is that like a name brand of a shoe that i didn't know about or like nope you mean like it's like a like town. small cities like Shits creek yes <laughs> i want to cross over where Shits creek has clark rockefeller <laughs> um sandy becomes the bad guy she drives home one day and finds a police car in front of their home And Clark in the front yard digging a hole. Um, The police car just has a mannequin in it for some reason. Clark says he's building a moat. Because that's sane. Right, that's normal. 
Sandy tells Clark she wants a divorce. He says she doesn't understand those security measures Snooks needs because she is a Rockefeller. And then he tells her he's with the group now. Um, he tells her that he'll get custody and she'll never see Snooks again. And where do people get this idea? I just, I can't. Is this, wait, is this group the same group that we talked about in our case three weeks ago? Like, is this just all one giant fake group that exists and we can keep girls in boxes and lie to our wives with it? Um, I think, well, this is a group with Clinton and um, oh, he, okay. Greenspan. Yeah, those people. Um, so Sandy's lawyer breaks the news that Clark is definitely not a Rockefeller. And not only that, they have no idea who he is. Um, he tells her everything is fake. All of the art, everything is not real. The problem is they have no idea who he is, but also without any idea, he won't get custody. Sandy goes home, fires the nanny, who was a real bitch anyways, packs Snooks up and gets the hell out of there. At mediation, you know, Clark comes in with his lawyer and he's all like smug and like, I'm totally going to win this. And then she's like, oh, yeah, you're not real. <laughs> I hope that that's the actual verbatim wording. No, she's like, so she's talking to his lawyer. She's talking to Clark's lawyer and she's like, by the way, he's not a Rockefeller. And then uh, Clark like jumps in. He's like, yeah, but like, da -da -da. and his lawyer's like, wait, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's how he lost he... custody of Snooks because. Then the lawyer was like, fuck, I'm not getting paid. Yeah. Clark's begs her. He's like, let's work this out. What difference does it make that you don't know my name? I am your husband. We used to have sex four times a day. Let's do that again. Um, so she tells him that's all to it name takes. his number. She tells him to name his number just to leave her and Snooks alone. He asks her for a million dollars and her engagement ring. She negotiates him down to 800000 and the engagement ring. Um, and then screams. She throws. Then she throws the ring at him. Good girl. And calls him a lying bastard. Um, back in the present, Clark's getting groceries for his boat. Uh, the realtor that sold him his house finally sees the news for the first time, even though it plays right in front of her desk, and calls the police. They stake out the house. Um, Clark sees the car and the binoculars inside the car. Um, so the cop calls the FBI lady who is like, by God, you get him out of that house before you arrest him. If he hurts that little girl, I'm going to kill all of you. Fair enough. So we're off to arrest Clark. They bring Sandy along because that's what the FBI does with cases. I'm sure. Um, right. well, somebody's got to keep their eye on unsolved mysteries to see if they can crack another one open while they're working on this case. Yeah. So the police have the guy from the marina call Clark and say that the catamaran is taking on water to get him out of the house. Snooks screams from the front door for him to not leave her. Oh. So he goes back inside. I know it was so sad. He goes back inside to calm her down. He leaves again, runs over to the marina and gets like super arrested. Now is that bet is that different than just regular arrested? Yeah, it's super. Gotcha. Okay. 
The team go in to find Snooks. Guns raised, which seems like a, the wrong way to get a young girl to come out of whatever wherever she's hiding. What do I know? Um, they find her upstairs listening to her headphones. Um, Sandy pulls up as they're bringing Snooks outside, and they hug. Snooks tells her mom that she thinks her dad is in a lot of trouble, but she really just wants to go home. Oh, Meredith Vieira is back to tell us about the arraignment. Meanwhile, back in California, where the family disappeared, a pool company arrives at the house to start digging the pool of the new owner's dreams. Oh, no. <laughs> um, while this is happening, Clark is giving a TV interview about how he was the wronged one here, and he remembers nothing of his old life. It's blocked. Sure, Jan. Um, the construction guys dig and the interviewer pushes for more information on John and Linda. Um, the police have now arrived at the dig, which I've never had a pool dug in my backyard, but I'm pretty sure that's not standard procedure. Um, Clark talks about how he's a pacifist and a Quaker and he's never hurt anyone, but the bodies they find under the pool site, I'm sure might disagree. He receives four years in federal prison for the kidnap and assault of the social worker. The ending shot shows him handcuffed in a cell while the news he's watching talks about how he remains a person of interest in the murder of John, of John and Linda. He voiceovers, quote, I can fairly certainly say that I've never hurt anyone. Um, and the ending says Sandra Boss currently lives in London with Snooks and continues to work as an international business consultant. In January 2010, she petitioned a London court to prevent any further contact between um, her daughter and her former husband. The petition is still pending. Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer, a.k.a. Clark Rockefeller, is currently serving a four to five year prison sentence. He is appealing his conviction and will be eligible for parole in 2012. He remains a person of interest in the disappearance of John and Linda Sohos. Oh, I'm glad that it's the old end. enough that I have updates. I know. I'm excited. All right. So, A, Lifetime didn't have to work very hard on this movie. Like, mm -mm. like it's not like they had to embellish anything because Clark did it for us. Nope. Yep. And um, I will say that for the duration of this I will refer to him as Clark, even though that's never been a name of his, um, just because it is his most notorious moniker. So, yeah. Um, um, so at the top, I um, used our good old friend Wikipedia um, yeah. for the article Christian Gerhardt's writer, um, an article from the Baltimore Sun called The Many Faces of Clark Rockefeller, um, an episode of NPR, All Things Considered called 30 year con from german kid to rockefeller scion and then our good good friends over at vanity fair um the man Ugh. in the rockefeller suit by mark seal i love vanity fair yes god it's the best true crime magazine mm -hmm. um all right so um on july 27th oh by the way i just had to do the math real quick if you bought $2,000 worth of Andre, it's 400 bottles. Good. That's exactly how many I need to get through this case. <laughs> Just because it's Word. so crazy. <laughs> All right. Excuse me. So on July 27th, 2008, Clark Rockefeller left his accommodations in the Algonquin Club in Boston, 
with his daughter, whom he called Snooks, sitting on his shoulders. They were headed toward Boston Common, where they were going to ride the swan boats in the public garden. And Clark Rockefeller looked exactly as you'd expect a Clark, uh, a Clark to look, a Rockefeller to look. Well, and I'm confused here, too, because, like, in... Like, why didn't they just name drop the Algonquin? Like, why did they name drop the plaza if they were in Boston? Right. Never. Um, so he was dressed in your typical, like, khakis and a blue Lacoste shirt. And he walked around with that, um, as you mentioned, the nouveau riche air of stateliness, where it was clear that he was ignoring things rather than he was so rich that he just ignored things by default. Mm-hmm. Um, People greeted them as they passed. He was well-known in this neighborhood. He had once lived in a $2.7 million four-story ivy-covered townhouse in the best neighborhood, which was nearby, as you mentioned in, from the movie. Um, yes. But that all changed when his wife, Sandra Boss, divorced him and took not only this home in Boston, but also their second home in New Hampshire. She won custody of their daughter and moved her to London. And Clark was restricted to three eight-hour visits a year, supervised by a social worker. And so this particular um, visit on July 27th, 2008, was one of his three visits of the year. As they were walking, a black SUV limousine pulled to the curb, you know, really inconspicuous-like. Totally. And um, so Rockefeller had arranged the limo to pick them up. And he told the driver that he and the Snooks had a lunch date with a senator's son in Newport, Rhode Island. And I forget how close together all of those states are because being from <laughs> Texas, the idea that you would go to another state for lunch and you'd take a limousine, I'm like, God, they had to leave so early. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... Um, he said that he would also need the driver's help breaking free of a particularly clingy friend, um, also known as the social worker, if, if you're trying to Mr. follow. Mr. Bernard. <laughs> Andy Bernard. Um, as the driver watched. This poor guy. I feel so bad for him. <laughs> right? As the driver watched, Clark turned, pushed the social worker hard, and then shoved his daughter into the limo so quickly that she actually hit her head on the doorframe getting mm-hmm. in. Um, he then instructed the the driver said that he hopped in and yelled for the driver to go, go, go. Like this is some kind of Italian job situation. Like Jason Statham is in fact his driver for the limousine. Good Lord. <laughs> so within minutes of getting in the limo, Clark asked the limo to pull over. He grabbed his daughter and climbed out and hailed a taxi instead. He told the limo driver that he was going to take the taxi to Massachusetts General Hospital to make sure that the, um, like the gouge that had opened up on her head was not serious. Oh, poor baby. Um, he instructed the limo to wait for him in a parking lot nearby. And so the driver did, and he waited two hours and then Clark never showed up. Instead, Clark wound up taking the cab to the, uh, to Boston sailing center where one of his friends had agreed to drive him to New York for $500. He begged her to hurry and said that he and Snooks were trying to catch a train that would take them to a boat launch on Long Island. But okay. when, when they made it to Manhattan, they got stuck in traffic. 
because Man- Manhattan is just known for its wide open roads. Mm-hmm. Everyone's in a pickup truck just singing at the top of their lungs while they go 70 through the streets of Manhattan. Like, what did he think mm-hmm. was going to happen? I I don't know. Um, so, an idiot. So while they're stuck in gridlock traffic, Rockefeller scoops up Snooks and leaves an envelope full of cash for the woman who'd driven him to Manhattan and then disappeared into the crowd without saying anything. And then just after that, the woman's cell phone rang. When she answers it, a friend says, oh my God, did you see the Amber Alert on Clark Rockefeller's daughter? She's been abducted. Like he abducted her and they disappeared. And that Mm -hmm. was the moment the poor woman found out that she was an accessory to a custodial kidnapping. Oops. So meanwhile, back in Boston, Sandra Boss was trying to handle the news that her daughter had been kidnapped by her ex-husband. Sandra Boss was a boss for sure. She was a Harvard graduate who earned an estimated $1.4 million a year as a senior partner at a management consulting firm. When the police asked Sandra if she knew Clark's driver's license number. And like, real quick, uh let's just run this down about what a boss she is. Because she kept their Boston home. Uh Uh-huh. She kept their family home in New Hampshire, and now this bitch has a flat in London. Right. Somebody's making shit work, and it's not Clark. Right. (laughs) So um, the police asked if she knew Clark's driver's license number, and she had to tell them that he didn't have one, that he never needed one. He always hired a car anytime he went anywhere. Mm -hmm. They asked her for his social security number, and she answered that she didn't know it. The police asked Sandra if he had filed taxes jointly with her before the divorce, and no, he hadn't. His credit cards were all on her accounts. His cell phone was under the name of a friend. And to every question the police asked, all Sandra could answer was no, he didn't have any legal official identification. You know, it sounds hard to believe, but also not. Right. Especially... Like, with me, it's different. We're not the Rockefellers. But also, like, if if I thought someone was, like, truly a Rockefeller, and I would never ask them about their ID or anything. Like, people just know who those people are. Right. Um. So initially, investigators called the the Rockefeller family, who I did, in fact, type in my notes, Rockefeller family twice and had to delete. And I'm still convinced that that's what we call them, apparently. Well, and they have their shit together because they were like, here's the family tree. Right. (laughs) Um, So they asked them about Clark the heir apparent to the Rockefeller fortune, of course. And then the quote from um, special agent Noreen Gleason, who is the FBI agent assigned to the case was quote, they said under no circumstances is there a link. We are not connected. So, (laughs) so it was like Mariah Carey in that interview where she's like, I don't know her. her. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um, Plenty of other people had heard of him. However, For five days, Gleason and a group of FBI agents and police officers in the United States and abroad were taken for a ride. Um, Like the limo driver and the friend of um, 
sorry, like the limo driver and the friend Rockefeller tricked into driving him to New York, the authorities soon realized they'd been set up. Before the extraordinarily well-planned vanishing act, Rockefeller had devised an equally elaborate escape plan, telling many of his well-to-do friends his destination, which in every case was different. Different. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they showed that in the movie. They were like, oh, he's going to the Turks and Caicos, and oh, he's going to Machu Picchu, and oh, he's going here. And the only one who was like, he's not going there was Sandy, because she was like, he doesn't fly ever right um in fact yes one he told that he was going to peru another he said he was going to alaska another to turks and caicos and then the bahamas and um gleason said quote it was fascinating we would start going down one avenue one lead we would get to the end of it and nothing would be there Mm -hmm. um and so red herrings start popping up kind of all over the globe um, and finally, his true identity is revealed because of a wine glass. So wine mm-hmm. always getting him in trouble. First it's the bounce check, and now it's the fact that he actually held a wine glass. And mm-hmm. um, while he was at a friend's house, he'd had a glass of That's wine. why you should learn to drink cheap wine, my friend. Right. Um, so the night before he left, he'd gone to a friend's house and had a glass of wine. And when investigators arrived the next day, the friend hadn't washed the glass yet. So they lifted fingerprints and sent them off to Quantico. To the FBI and this lab. is why it's okay to leave the dirty dishes in the sink overnight. That's a, yep. For just years on end. Scientific evidence. I love that. <laughs> um, so while the alleged kidnappers fingerprints were being analyzed, um, the FBI releases pictures of him to the media. And then soon all of his identities began emerging. Whoops. Some people knew him as Chris Gerhart, a university of Wisconsin film student, which there it is, Aaron. He was in Wisconsin. We should have known from the beginning. That's where he married the girl for a green card. Yep. Mm-hmm. Others said he was Christopher. Which the way they showed it in the movie, which was so funny, is like they're getting married and then they shake hands and then he leaves. That's basically how it happened. <laughs> um, so um, others knew that knew him as Christopher Chichester, a descendant of British royalty who had um, lived in a wealthy suburb of L.A. in the 1980s and had charmed basically the entire city. Um, I, huh? I just want to say, maybe the only family that has a more well-documented family tree than the Rockefellers is gonna be right? the royal family. <laughs> nah. Um, an idiot. So let's see. Oh yeah, so he disappeared from that LA suburb. Um, after he was being sought for questioning and the disappearance of a couple who'd gone missing. Um, still others remembered him as Christopher C. Crow, a TV producer who'd worked for at least three Wall Street investment firms in the late 80s before suddenly vanishing. And then, of course, scores of people knew him as Chris Rocker- Clark Rockefeller, a Boston aristocrat whose friends included important artists, writers, producers, doctors, financiers, and then members of prestigious private clubs. 
so um gleason says oh go ahead this is where like this is where rich people get in trouble but also they could he could have been found out so easily right because everyone that's actually rich is connected to everyone. Right. They could have, somebody's connected to the Rockefellers and they would have been like, oh, I met Clark Rockefeller and then boom, end right. of story. Right. So how uh, he got away with this for so long baffles me, especially in the Boston area, which is connected to New York. Like th those social scenes are really connected. It's just right. totally well, random. And we can dial it all the way back to when he was using the wrong social security number. Why didn't anyone file charges against that? Like, because companies just want to like, let those people go and not deal with it. Um, so Gleason, that's why all those doctor deaths get away with shit. Right. So Gleason says, quote, now we're thinking that we're dealing with a person who might have committed two homicides. We've tracked this person for a week and we really don't know who he is. Statistically speaking, parental kidnappings can go very bad. A lot of times people say, if I can't have her, she's not going to have her either. We've seen time and time again that the person who's kidnapped the child will kill himself and the child. You don't want to get to the point where he knows he's caught and has possession of her because that's when the game is going to be over. Yep. So when the results come back from the print lab, um, one thing becomes clear. The alleged kidnapper was not a Rockefeller. No way. Yeah. Crazy. I'm shocked. He was, in fact, Christian Karl Gerhardt's writer, a 47-year-old German immigrant who had come to America as a student in 1978 and who had disappeared into a complicated existence that the Boston district attorney would call, quote, the longest con I've seen in my professional career. Well, this was before Madoff, so. Right. Um, yeah. According to his parents, Simon and Ermgard Gerhardt's writer, um, which who, by the way, were alive and he has spun like several thousand times at this point that his parents died tragically at several points of his life. And they're like, Nabra, right here. Um, yeah. so he was born February 21st, 1961 in Sigsdorf, Bavaria, Germany. He said he was mm -hmm. born February 29th, 1960. So, like, he can't even, like, use the actual birth date. And he's like, no, my parents are liars. Well, first of all, he had to make himself a leap year baby. Right. Fuck off. You're not just that to, important. Just to be special. God. Um, so, after being arrested by Boston police in 2007... Gerhardt's writer told them that his mother was Ann Carter, an American child actress of the 1940s, and had claimed that she had died. But she was still alive in August of 2007. So, like, they could just easily be like, hey, did you die? And also, do you have a son? <laughs> the number of people, especially with the crowd he was running with, Everybody in the club wants to know who the most powerful person in the club is. Who has the most leeway with regards to decisions that are made, etc. So they're going to research your family to death to figure out which one of you is more legitimate. Right. So how none of these 
it's like hobby for these women that hang out in the club all the time. These old wit ladies who lunch. Right. That is their hobby. So I don't understand how he went all this time and nobody ever questioned him. It makes well, no sense. Because he did the, hey, look, a distraction thing. Like I could literally walk into the place, the church that I grew up in and ask pretty much any random old lady, whatever happened to Judge Blank? Uh-huh. And they'd be able to tell me. Uh-huh. And also what happened to his parents or her parents and then like date you, you know, all the way back to the founding of your hometown. And then uh-huh. also tell you about how his childhood home is now a church's chicken. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Society ladies know their shit. And so the fact that nobody called him out is just incredible to me. They need better women in that club. For sure. <laughs> So when um, Gerhardt's writer came over to America for the first time, he was on a train trip and he, oh no, sorry, this was before he came over. Um, He met and charmed a family from America on this train trip in Germany uh, who told them that if he was ever in the United States, he should look them up. Well, you know. It's just a thing you say to people, not something they say. Right. So naturally... He just, like, appears on their doorstep one day. Just like, hey, remember me? It's me. It's me, Clark, Chris, Gerhester, Rockefeller. Like, they're like, no, no, I don't actually remember. Okay, sure, come in. So, yeah. He moves into their house in Connecticut in 1978. He lives with them for a short period of time. Um, And then he posts an ad in a local newspaper seeking new lodging um, where he lands now with the Savio family in Berlin, Connecticut. Um, The eldest son of the family, Edward Savio, says, quote, he said he was an exchange student and he was going to finish high school in the States. Um, This is the random guy for the middle of my movie. Yeah. Okay. So this guy, Edward now lives in San Francisco or in 2007 was living in San Francisco and was writing. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a screenwriter and a novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the Savio home and in Berlin high school, uh, Christopher Gerhardt's writer, uh, which at that point he was splitting his last name into two names. So it was Christopher mm-hmm. Gerhardt's writer. Um, Began a process. Because German's not already complicated enough. Right. So um, he starts to reinvent himself. He practices his English, um, especially by watching Gilligan's Island. We'll get into that in just a second. Um, and he, like, he starts to cultivate his appearance in this, like, he's wearing, like, tight European clothes. He's got long hair. He wears sight uh, white sunglasses and um, so he was Euro trash. Right. And so Edward Savio said, quote, he said his father was an industrialist, something to do with Mercedes. Mm-hmm. Um, he tells a girl in a bar in the movie, we have seven cars, one for every day of the week. And I'm like, your dad owns Mercedes Benz and you have seven cars. Right. I already don't believe you. Right. <laughs> um, so God, I- I'm such a snobby bitch. 
As I mentioned, he was fascinated with Gilligan's Island and the character Thurston Howell III, who was the ascot-wearing millionaire member of the North Northeastern elite who was so rich that he took tens of thousands of dollars in cash and multiple changes of clothing for the three-hour tour. Um, Which did him a lot of good. Right. On the islands. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Chris slept on the Savio's couch and each day he, um, when he awoke, he expected his breakfast to be prepared and his clothing laundered. Um, and Savio says, quote, he made it clear that living in this manner was beneath him. And so the final straw was one afternoon. He refused to get up from the couch to unlock the door for the little sister, like the younger sisters of the family. So they just kicked him out, like put him out on the streets. Mm-hmm. And so to show them, he changes his name to Chris Kenneth, Chris Kenneth Gerhardt. Um, and he starts studying at the University of Wisconsin, um, where he studied film and where he told the Savios in a phone call, he planned to vote for Ronald Reagan in the presidential election. But you're not an American citizen, one of them exclaimed. Not a problem, he said. He would soon have a green card and become a legal resident. So he just found the first schmuck that would marry him to get his green card. They didn't know each other very well. And basically the moment his green card was available, he peaced out and divorced her. Um, Mm -hmm. Also several weeks after the wedding, he stops attending class. And then um, fast forward a little bit to Edward Savio living now in LA as a writer who gets a phone call from Chris Kenneth Gerhardt, who's just arrived in LA and he wants to say hello because he's going to make it in film. Oh, honey. They did make a film about him. So almost you just forgot a few words there. So close. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Upon moving to LA, Gerhardt begins going, begins going by another new name. And this time it's Christopher Chichester, which, um, Edward's, which is the worst name. Well, Edward Savio is like Chichester, like our English teacher, Miss Joan Chichester. Like, so he's just like knocked off one of his high school English, like high school right. teacher's names. He's like, yeah, she taught English Royal family. I'm a Baron. Right. I can what? see the connection. <laughs> So he makes also, his... I'm really confused of how Chichester is supposed to be like an English aristocratic name. I don't know, but I know that there's a series of Psalms, the Chichester Psalms, um, written by one of my favorite composers that I wonder if it is any connection to the same like idea that Chris Gerhardt's writer thought he was using. It just doesn't sound English. I don't know. It's heavy on the German to me. I don't know. I don't claim I to mean, know the etymology of the name Chichester. Royal family are German, so. Right. <laughs> um, so he makes his way to San Marino, which is a suburb of L.A., um, where it's all, like, very wealthy people. He um, slips, and he, like, starts to fit in in society. He becomes a regular at the at local businesses and social clubs, um, he, these social clubs, he gets free lunches every day because they treat him like a member. He, um, appears at prominent churches where weddings are bountiful with like buffets 
and he goes to libraries where he can loiter for hours and improve his mind. Um, and so soon with his Ivy league clothes, impeccable manners, and his aristocratic accent, he is squiring the town's elderly widows around, enjoying their big houses and their lavish lifestyles. I mean, yeah, because you don't eat for free at the club. Right. You charge it to your account, but you pay for it. Right. <laughs> so he's just like eating on other people's memberships, basically, at this point. Um, so he flashes and whatever he can, he flashes his like... Flashes his, yep. <laughs> I just spilled all over myself. He flashes this comically oversized business card that is embossed with what he calls the Chichester family crest. It's a heron with its wings spread and an eel in its beak. And the no. family motto, firm and foy, which means firm in faith. The card reads... Christopher Chichester, the 13th Baron, uh, the 13th Baronet, San Marino, California. And that's how you make it official, Aaron. You get a large business card and you can write anything on it and people just believe it. Yeah, I just walk into the room and expect people to know who I am. Right. Same. Been there. Um. So nine miles down the freeway from San Marino is the University of Southern California, which has a really good <laughs> film school. And so Christopher Chichester becomes a familiar presence at the film school. Um, oh, is he on the, the crew team? <laughs> right. Aunt Becky's helping him out there. Um, <laughs> quote, it seemed that he knew everybody and everything at USC, remembers Dana Ferrer, a film and journalism student who was there at the time. There are no records listing him as a student of the film school, but he always seemed to have a screenplay from the library under his arm. Um, and I wrote, that's the 80s version of posing for rowing pictures, I guess. It is. Well, here's the thing. You can go to university and just sit in on classes. They can't right. stop you. Right. Um, so now enter John and Linda Sohus. Sohus. So John and Linda. Sohus. So Thank who's so, so us, I think. So us. Um, yes. The town, quote, the town is divided into three, says Jan Eldnor, who was a resident of San Marino. Super Marino on the hill with its houses that cost like $5 million and up. Mm-hmm. San Marino on the flats, which are good big houses for like doctors and professionals. And then Sub Marino, which is where the houses are cheaper, quote, for engineers, school teachers, and lower income. And I'm like, the engineers are the lower income? Well, and I'm also curious because $5 million for a house in California is not that much. Right. Uh, but this was what, the 80s? Yeah. Okay, so that makes more sense. Yeah. Um, so Chichester is living squarely in Submarino, but went rent-free in a guest house behind the main house of... Ruth, who is called Dee Dee Sois. I don't know how Dee Dee comes from Ruth, but you know what? That's the least of my questions in this case. Nobody um, knows. She is known to everyone as a reclusive alcoholic. Um, the drama begins when her adopted son, John. Oh, listen, Elliot's really upset about this case. Elliot is really upset. Um, How's Winston? Oh, he's so good. I'm glad he's home. We snuggled all day today because I wasn't feeling great. Aww. I was feeling like 
nauseated, so it's not like mentally not great like I was yesterday. I'm much better, but then I was like physically ill, and I was like, couldn't these have both hit at the same time? So I'm gonna have like just one bad day, right? Oh, I'm feeling a feeling of existential dread. So, right. Oh, I'm sorry about that. So uh, the drama begins when Didi's son John comes. He's this really like geeky guy in his 20s who has this real low level job in the computer department of um, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is in Pasadena. Sure. He moves in with his, like, he and his wife move in with mom. Um, his mm-hmm. wife's name is Linda, and she's this vivacious redhead. She's an aspiring artist who um, worked as a clerk at Dangerous Visions, which is a science fiction bookstore. And it sounds like something I would frequent, honestly. Um, <laughs> quote They made an odd couple, Lily Hadsell, who was then on the San Marino police force, had said. Quote, he was short, curly-haired, and dorky, and she was tall, big-boned, and attractive. So, there you go. Not, don't know why okay. that matters, but it was important to know. <laughs> Maybe he had, like, a good personality and a nice job, and he was smart and funny. Right. No, women I don't, don't know. Women don't marry men for their personality, Aaron. Um, literally every hot guy I've dated has turned out to be a trash monster. So, oh no, I'm well aware. I way married up, and thank God it's because she liked my personality. Because I don't have a whole lot more to <laughs> offer most days. I need a haircut in the worst kind of way. <laughs> my roots are like four inches long. So, because I was scheduled to go in right before the shutdown, and so right. now it's been sixty more days. <laughs> so shortly after Chichester moves in, John and his wife Linda disappear. Years later, when the house was sold and new owners were digging up the backyard, they unearth bones that are believed to be those of John Soas. For more than two decades, no one had been convicted convicted for the killing of John Soas. So then more than 20 years later, after Clark Rockefeller kidnaps his daughter, investigators come upon this astonishing video about the years he'd lived in San Marino, a July 1995 segment of Unsolved Mysteries called, quote, San Marino Bones, um, which begins with... I have got to find this on Hulu. Yeah, I meant to research like what episode it was, but I didn't. But the the um, segment is called San Marino Bones, so that should help because I'm sure there's a comprehensive <laughs> list out there. Yeah. Um. So this episode begins, or like this segment begins with a scene of workers digging the pit for the swimming pool, and they discover three plastic bags with skeletal remains. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, in classic unsolved mysteries fashion. So, um, in early 19- so I have a funny. I have a funny pool digging story <laughs> i love funny pool digging story i didn't even know this was a category okay okay so my grant is like my aunt so my aunt and i are going through a bunch of like old photos um right. to save or toss or whatever of my grandmother's and so she told me this story last week and i can't get out of my head it's so funny uh, and maybe you would have to know my grandfather to know how funny this is but it's hilarious so it's like the late seventies and they had just bought the house, like the house that I grew up seeing them in, um, in San Antonio and they decided to dig a pool in the backyard. So my grandfather hires a contractor and they come out and they start digging and then they like disappear. 
They don't call. Nothing for like weeks and weeks and weeks. Okay. And okay, so just to like paint the picture, my grandfather was very like jokey, fun loving, um, and very extroverted and always okay with attention. And my grandmother was very like no nonsense, um, very strictly raised Southern woman, but also not a racist. It's very confusing, but <laughs> race has nothing to do with this. So um, my grandfather starts joking with her because there's a segment on our local news and it's still a segment called eyewitness wants to know. Okay. Where you can turn in local businesses who have wronged you and they'll come do a story about it. Right. <laughs> so my grandfather starts joking about turning them into eyewitness wants to know. And he's like, I'm going to do it. And my grandmother's like, Oh my God, Bob, you're like insane. Like just leave it alone. It'll be fine. So my grandfather doesn't tell her. He calls the news. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> and one morning, out of nowhere, my the doorbell rings, and my grandmother opens the door, and it's the news people. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, are, are you uh, Mrs. Matthews? And she's like, yes, I am. Um, why are you here? <laughs> And she's like, oh, they're like, oh, we're doing a story for eyewitness wants to know, blah, blah, blah. And so she's just like turns into the house. She's like, Bob. <laughs> and he like comes out and he's like, oh, is it the, is it the news people? He's like super excited. That's awful. And she's like, it's the news people. And he's like, we're going to be on the news. And she just looks at him like dead ass and goes, you're going to be on the news. And walks into her bedroom and closes the that's hilarious so my grandfather was on the news about this pool company and then like three weeks later the pool was done (laughs) that's hilarious (laughs) but he was really proud of that pool it was probably the coolest pool i've ever been in in my life i loved it (laughs) and this has been tangents with aaron sorry it's a funny story no it is funny um it's not going to so, be on the news. Like, those people were going to be on the news. They just didn't know it. Right, right. It's totally related. So, um, in early 1985, according to the program, John and Linda told friends they'd landed an important job with a U.S. government satellite program. Although they were sworn to secrecy, Linda had actually let it slip that they both had to return or report immediately for duty in New York, but they had returned to San Marino two weeks later to pack their things up. Eight weeks mm-hmm. later, since there had been no word from them, Linda's sister finally calls Dee Dee for an explanation. Um, and so Dee Dee in the re- in the like reenactment, Dee Dee is um in this pink house coat and she's like got her drink in her hand and she's like slurring because they're really trying to play up the like alcoholism. Um, mm-hmm. And she says, "John Linda went to Europe on a top secret mission." For the government. Like, it's this, like, really poorly acted slurred speech. Um, Merka. <laughs> then she tells the police that um, she had a source for this information. The source was giving her updates on her son and daughter-in-law, who, except for two postcards, um, postmarked from Paris, France, according to Didi, were never heard from again. Um, right. 
Five months after their disappearance, Dee Dee files a missing persons report on the couple. And suddenly, um, like suddenly she decides that her source is not um, who she's thinking or like her source is not um, a real source because it's Christopher Chichester and he's just disappeared. Um, Mm. So he knew she was going to be on the news. Right. So before he skips town, Chichester goes to get a a haircut because you can't run from the law looking a hot mess. Sure. And so he says that a family member has died back in England and he has to go take care of the estate. Um, so in, but the thing is he leaves in, um, I've gone blank on the son's name now. John's truck. Right. So in um, 1988, the truck turns up in Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, a man who's now calling himself Christopher C. Crow has tried unsuccessfully to sell the truck to the son of a local minister. In the course Mm -hmm. of their investigation, police discover that Christopher Chichester and Christopher C. Crow are the same person. No way. But by then, the young man has vanished again. So he actually settles in Greenwich, Connecticut for a little bit. And he um, assumes this identity of Christopher C. Crow. He claims that he's a television producer from L.A., who worked on the 1980s remake of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Mm -hmm. Um, Christopher Crowe was one of the names of the producers, like of one of the producers on the series. Yeah. Just not him. Right. So, um, (laughs) since, you know, he's a, (laughs) since he's a big TV producer, he takes a job at what you'd expect a brokerage firm to work with the firm's computers. Totally. But he's fired because they discover that he uses the social security number of David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. How do you randomly pick David Berkowitz's number? I will never get over this. That is wild. So because they don't report it to anybody... He gets to have another job, and this time he's employed by Nico Securities Limited as a sales manager of corporate bonds until he's fired. He works briefly for Kidder Peabody and Company, but he quits his job and abandons the Christopher Crow uh, moniker when he discovers that police are looking for him in connection with the disappearance of John and Linda Soas. So... Despite not having a college degree or any semblance of experience, Crow was next hired to work, like to head a department in the U.S. offices of Nico Securities on Wall Street with an estimated annual base salary of $150,000. I mean, sure, that seems fair. I busted my ass for a master's degree in education and I can't even make a full 50 a year, but he should definitely make triple my salary. Um, Maybe the answer is we just need to go like to companies and pretend to be very, very rich. God, I was reading a series of tweets of people who've just done things like with confidence and how you get away with it. And one girl said that um, she stole a boy's like clothing 
in front of him, she had like his pants draped over her shoulder and had a whole conversation. Like she, he was a dick. So she just like stole things from him and they would be like in plain sight. But she talked to him with such confidence and made such like aggressive eye contact that he never even noticed. So maybe that's <laughs> I mean, it. that's why the con and con artist stands for confidence. Does it really? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Well, now we know. Um, I have a whole book about it. It's very good, actually. So at this place, um, Crow's team says that it's apparent that um, he's never, that he has no idea what he's doing from the very beginning. So he's um, fired for incompetence. Um, and what he did know, though, was how to lie. So on this occasion, he is actually related to none other than Mountbatten and the Battenberg family from Germany. (laughs) So he monograms everything he owns with his initials, triple C, and he claims he collects Rolls Royces and Italian sports cars. When did Mountbatten start starting with the letter C? Yeah, because he's Christopher C. Crow still, but he's like a descended from Mountbatten. Uh-huh. No. <laughs> no. Um so the thing oh. is the Mountbattens are still they still go by the Mountbattens, so Right. So, um, apparently, cause I gave you the short version of what they did and then this is the extant expanded and I didn't realize I'd done this. So I, I felt, I was like, mm-hmm. I thought he'd already dropped this name. So, um, it was from there that he went to Kidder Peabody and company and, um, that's when he found out the police were after him. So he quits at his job at Kidder saying that his parents have mm-hmm. gone missing in Afghanistan. And I wrote, sure, at this point, fine, I'll allow it. I mean, I feel like that would be on the news nah. somewhere. Like right after Eyewitness wants to know with my grandfather <laughs> complaining about his pool. <laughs> so several years pass after this that are completely unaccounted for. But when he emerges again, he was in his most powerful form yet. He's become Clark Rockefeller. You don't just become a Rockefeller. Also, here's the thing. As the heir apparent to the Rockefeller fortune, which everyone apparently knew him by. Uh Uh-huh. He would have had to run his wife by someone. Right? Someone would have needed to meet her first. Right. Not secret wedding. Like, come on. So. In 1995, he begins using the name James Frederick Mills Clark Rockefeller. (laughs) Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) That's too many names. Um, So he... No, no, that's enough names. (laughs) He marries um, Sandra Boss in 1995, who is a senior executive at uh, McKinsey. Um, Like I mentioned, she's a Harvard Business School graduate. She also graduated from Stanford. Um, They had a Quaker ceremony that had no legal status. And so that is why he claims that he is like of the Quaker faith. So often is like, he's still holding that lie for that marriage. Have you read anything about the Quaker faith? (laughs) Yes. 
it is very much not rooted in what the Rockefellers would stand on. Right. As they became the most, one of the most powerful families in America. Right. Um, in fact, a book I just read with my students, um, a Quaker moves into a society of Puritans and it's a big issue. Um, mm-hmm. And she gets called a witch and it's a beautiful book, mm-hmm. The Witch of Blackbird Pond. I love it so much. But um, I mean, it's very much a kid's book, but it's a fun one to teach. Anyway. That sounds good though. Yeah. I just, yeah. Quake, Quakers are like not capitalism. Yeah. I mean, so of course the the Quakers and the Rockefellers seem like they align perfectly. I'm sure. Um, so. Yeah. The Quaker, the, the Rockefellers worship at the, um, the idol, they're very the much Protestants altar, I mean. and also capitalists. Right. <laughs> Um, so anyway, um, she later testifies that Rockefeller is charming and that she believed the stories he told her at the beginning of the relationship, but later he became emotionally abusive and there was a lot of anger and yelling in their household. Um, although she earned all of the family income, she testified that he held complete control of the family's finances and other aspects of the day-to-day life. Um, he goes to great lengths to conceal his identity from his wife. He repeatedly tells her that she should file her tax return as a single person. Mm-hmm. And then later in their marriage, his wife's firm requires that a certified, like a CPA does her taxes because I think he'd been doing it. Um, so he says, don't worry about it. I'll find your accountant. And, um, so after their divorce, boss learns that he'd told their accountant that he was her brother so that the accountant would continue filing single tax returns for her. So the couple has a daughter in 2001. Rockefeller lives with boss in their, um, in Cornish, New Hampshire, where he used, um, his supposed family ties to bolster his reputation telling friends and neighbors that he was a wealthy Yale graduate who owned a business in Canada under the name Clark Rockefeller. He'd gained membership to the Algonquin club where he spent a great deal of time. Um, he was actually one of their directors. He had to resign in April of 2008. So in 2006, Sandra boss hires a private investigator and discovers to her shock and everyone else's that he is not a Rockefeller. Um, but she didn't know his real time or his real name or identity at the time. Um, she said he was unpleasant to deal with, but she did not think he was delusional. Um, so Mm -hmm. after discovering that he'd lied about his identity, she, and divorcing him, she legally changes the couple's daughter's name. Like, so the daughter was a Rockefeller. And so she legally changes it to her last name instead. Good for her. And during the case, boss accuses her, um, accuses Clark of lying about being a member of the Rockefeller family. And, um, of course the Rockefellers deny any relation. I'm trying to speed through cause I've still got like a page and a half. It's ridiculous. Oh, you're don't speed. It's fine. So boss testifies in June of 2009 at his trial that he agreed to give her custody of their daughter following the divorce. She testifies that he also agreed to supervise visits three times a year in return for an $800,000 settlement, two cars, her engagement ring, and a dress that he'd given her. And she moves to London following their divorce. Um, And now, in classic Quentin Tarantino style, we're back at the beginning. 
where mm-hmm. on August 2nd, 2008, after a week-long search, Clark is found in Baltimore, Maryland, where he has recently purchased an apartment for about $450,000 under the name Charles Chip Smith. He's really obsessed with those C's. There's lots of C names mm-hmm. going on here. Yeah. Um, I've got a C name for you. <laughs> And I don't use that word. I know so you don't. I mean it. Um, with the help of the owner of a local marina where he had kept, um, where Clark kept his catamaran, FBI agents mm-hmm. were able to lure him out of his apartment with a phone call telling him that the boat was taking on water. He was arrested like as soon as he left the apartment and was charged with kidnapping and assault and battery. Um, his daughter mm-hmm. was found unharmed inside the apartment. Thank God. Thank God. So on August 15th, 2008, the FBI, the Massachusetts State Police, the Boston Police Department, and the Suffolk County District Attorney confirmed that Clark Rockefeller is, in fact, Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer. Um, He was conclusively identified by means of forensic examination. Um, When... Gerhardt's writer under the name Clark Rockefeller was arrested. His fingerprints were taken by FBI agents in Baltimore and by Boston police. When he was returned to Massachusetts, they're compared to the latent fingerprints lifted from a variety of sources. They matched mm-hmm. a latent print lifted from the wine glass that I mentioned earlier. Um, they also match a latent print developed from a document in his immigration file in the early 1980s. So, although there were no fingerprint cards or inked impressions in the immigration file, uh, the FBI lab was able to develop the latent print impressions from this document, and that's mm-hmm. how they can con- conclusively confirm his identity. So, right. on September 3rd, 2008, he's charged with furnishing a false name to a law enforcement officer following an arrest. His lawyers later argue that he did not do this for dishonest purposes. I don't know what other purposes they think there are are in this case but i mean either way he knew the truth and he lied so right that sounds like like dishonesty hairs here yeah um on october 2nd 2008 at a hearing requested by defense attorney stephen rones bell was revoked um let's see oh that doesn't matter it's just part of his timeline um on february 13th 2009 like it's where i got into the nitty-gritty of the actual like trial Mm -hmm. stuff stuff that doesn't matter um so on february 13th 2009 his attorneys file noticed that they're going to use an insanity defense and while this story is insane he does not qualify for an insanity defense nope he knew what he was doing the whole time um, so during the trial, his defense team says that Gerhardt's writer believed that his daughter had communicated with him telepathically from London, where she and her mother moved after, after the divorce and was begging him to rescue her. Um, what, she can't send an email? Right. Um, so... There are people who say that he's got this um, delusional disorder, grandiose type, and I know this is going to shock you, but they diagnose him with narcissistic personality disorder. No way. Right? Um, That is shocking. 
Dr. James Chu, a psychiatrist for the prosecution, testifies that um, he has diagnosed Gerhardt's writer with a mixed personality disorder with narcissistic and antisocial traits, but felt that Gerhardt's writer had exaggerated his symptoms of mental illness and was capable of knowing right from wrong. He noted the defendant had allegedly meticulously planned the details of the abduction well in advance. Um, and so he points out that the limousine was called and was given this like fake story and all those things. And that he had intentionally told all the friends wrong places that he was going. So like, you can't deny that he was making plans. Um, right. So closing arguments concluded on June 8th of 2008. Uh, nine and on June 12th of 2009, the jury convicts him of kidnapping his seven year old daughter, as well as one count of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon for ordering his getaway driver to pull away, even though the social worker was hanging onto the vehicle. So oh, he, Mr. Bernard, his original like sentence was thank God, like was thanks to Andy Bernard holding onto that limo. Um, he was a good for you, Andy. He was acquitted of this of a second assault charge as well as for giving his false name to the police. The judge sentences him to four to five. Um, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. The judge sentences him to four to five years in a state prison on the kidnapping count and a concurrent two to three years uh, on the assault charge. So news reports indicate that a grand jury, um, was to be convened then in the spring of 2009, to examine evidence mm-hmm. in the SOAS case. Um, so the, um, the judge in the kidnapping case actually had barred prosecutors from presenting evidence about the SOAS case to avoid prejudicing jurors against Gerhardt's writer because they didn't have an official case against him at the time. And he wanted Gerhardt's writer to have the most honest case with the jury possible so that there couldn't be grounds for uh arguing what's it called for an appeal fuck this guy though like for real i think what he like i think in the end he did the right thing i understand thing, it like, to protect against it, appeals and like, more red tape Ooh. well so on march 15 2011 prosecutors then charge him with the murder of jonathan soas and on january 24 2012 um the judge, uh, LA County judge, um, rules that Gerhardt's writer must stay in trial for the death of Soas. The murder trial was held in March and April of 2013, and he's convicted mm-hmm. of first degree murder on April 10th, 2013. The verdict included an enhancement for the use of deadly weapon to bludgeon Jonathan Soas to death. Evidence in the case was largely circumstantial, but jurors were most swayed by two plastic book bags found buried with Soas's remains. One was from the University of Wisconsin, where he had attended classes, and one was from USC, where he audited film classes. One Mm -hmm. juror said that um, that was the most solid piece of evidence that was presented to them. They also heard evidence that Gerhardt's writer was in possession of Soas's pickup truck following the murder. Yep. So on August 15th, whatever happened to that girl though, the wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No idea. Um, on August 15th, 2013 Christian Gerhardt's writer was given the maximum sentence of 27 years to life with credit for one year served after finishing his sentence in Massachusetts. 
after he was convicted, um, he fired his lawyer and he did everyone's favorite thing. He represented himself? He represented himself during the sentencing phase. (laughs) God, I love it when they do this. They're so fucking dumb. He maintains his innocence during the sentencing and says, I want to assert my innocence and that I firmly believe that the victim's wife killed the victim. But be that as it may, once again, I did not commit the crime of which I stand accused. Right, but by now you're convicted, buddy. You're not accused. Right. <laughs> like, wait, you're late. His sentence... They already said that you did it. <laughs> In 2015, his sentence is reduced on appeal, and it gets reduced from 27 years to life to 26 years to life. It's like that meme with like Target that it's like uh-huh. I don't think they know how sales work and yeah. it's like seven ninety nine and then it says eight fifty nine on the sale tag. Yes. <laughs> um so with good time credits, he will be eligible for parole in September of twenty thirty when he will be sixty nine years old. Um his parole hearing is currently scheduled for July twenty twenty nine. Um and after being in a couple of prisons he um, has exhausted all of his state appeals and will begin on and has started on federal appeals and has been transferred to San Quentin State Prison. And that is the story cool. of Christopher Gerhardt's writer, the he Rockefeller sucks. heir apparent. <laughs> Except not at all. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, that oh was a God. wild ride, and we're at it an, was we're at an hour and forty five minutes. So, um, um let's but skip, what are we going to do next? Week? I was going to say, let's skip our normal banter and just go straight to what we're doing next week. What do you want to do next week? Um, give me something real stupid. Okay. Or a real stupid sounding name. Um, well, what do you think about doing Death of a Cheerleader? Oh, I'm so down. The original with Tori Spelling. Spelling. Yeah. I'm so in. All right. I cannot wait. Death of a Cheerleader. And to not just take the rest of your life. All I can say is we appreciate you for joining us and we love you. And uh, we hope that you will follow us on all of our social media. Um, Instagram Mm -hmm. at Lifetime Sentence. Twitter Mm -hmm. at Life Sentence Pod. Facebook.com slash Lifetime Sentence. You can find us uh, show notes and episode files at LifetimeSentence.com. Join us over at Patreon at patreon.com slash lifetime sentence last week we gave you a little preview of some things you might hear there um and we've updated it this week so that it's all user-friendly because it was not and yes um we are just blowing and going so we are do you have anything else you'd like to say before we go i don't please go join our patreon 
Um, we everything's available now. It's gonna be super fun. And if we get like a few more subscribers, we can really do the Facebook group because I think there'll be enough people. Absolutely. To like really have a good time. So absolutely. Um, yeah, that's it. All right. Well, don't forget to eat your vegetables. Charge your phone. Bye. Bye.